up to 70% off. That's right, at Court Furniture Clearance Center. Get up to 70% off new retail prices and choose from a wide variety of previously leased furniture and decor for your home or office. Sofas from $199.99, bedroom sets from $399.99, dining sets from $299.99, and more. All items are court certified, guaranteed, and in stock, ready for delivery or to take home today. Make the smart choice and visit one of our five locations in the DMV or go online at courtclearancefurniture.com. Mention Radio 20 and get 20% off. Blog Talk Radio. as 
having you know, doing something you know, inappropriate or, or being involved in some mismanagement. And ultimately, the township serves her with a subpoena, and they want to know from her everything that she she did to investigate the claim. They want witnesses and source information and that sort of thing. And in New Jersey, as as in most states, there's some sort of shield law that's in place for newspaper writers and um, online writers for you know major magazines and publications. So the shield law basically allows news reporters or those in the industry to um, refuse, even pursuant to a subpoena, depending upon the circumstances, to provide certain information that um, could either implicate various sources or create a problem for them. Um, you know, it basically is a way that allows the media to refuse to disclose all of the information related uh, to the news gathering process. So on a large scale and, and with, with regular news outlets, uh, this is something that's not uncommon. If a regular news outlet gets served with a subpoena, they often move to quash the subpoena and they cite whatever state they're in, you know, they're the equivalent of the shield law, and says we're in the media and we've done independent investigation and we are not uh, you know, required to provide all of our disclosures to you. So this case is a little unique because this is an individual who maintains her own private blog. She's not a corporation. She's not theoretically part of the traditional media. And she tried to quash the subpoena that was served on her by the county arguing that she should be entitled to the protection of the shield laws just as anyone else in the media. And it's interesting because as the Internet has developed over the years and a lot of um, some of the more um, sophisticated type media um, outlets have, have become available to the individual person, and what I mean by that is, you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago, you'd never hear of anybody having their own uh, news-related uh, online blog that lists all of the, the, the you know, corrupt people in the county. And it just wasn't something that was possible. Maybe it was something that people talked about over a cup of coffee, but certainly you, know, you weren't able to have your own newspaper. You didn't have your own... Uh, television show, you didn't have your own radio program. These were things that were reserved primarily for the official media. And um, now with the ease of being able to kind of publicize yourself, it raises a lot of questions. What about a blog? And is this woman an individual who is not tasked with keeping the counties and the governments in check by anybody but her own conscience, is she um, protected under the shield law? And so the New Jersey court, uh, the Superior Court came down and they said, well, you know what, she is performing a media-related function. And they looked to determine whether or not, A, there was a connection to the news media, 
right? And they determined that, yeah, there was, because it is news-oriented, news-related when she's going to be reporting on, on a local uh, county or municipality. Uh, they looked to see if the purpose was to gather and disseminate news, which it was. Yeah, she wasn't trying to um, criticize someone for the sake of criticizing it. It wasn't a personal vendetta. It was purely, in her mind, news-related. And then the, the third criteria that they looked at was whether or not the material at issue, which was her blog post, was obtained in the course of professional news-gathering activities. And even though she's not necessarily a professional in the media, um, with today's technology, any real, anybody really could become uh, part of the quote-unquote media. And so the New Jersey court uh, determined that she did not have to reveal her sources and that she does have protection that extends under New Jersey shield law. So, so this is an interesting development because it's, uh, it's one of uh, the first in New Jersey to discuss the rights of a blogger and to sort of bring an independent blogger who is engaged in news and media-related activities and kind of bring them under the umbrella of what traditional media and news outlets um, you know, receive from a protection standpoint of, of being able to keep their sources uh, private. So it's an interesting uh, development. And I think that we're going to see far more of this as time goes by because as technology increases, we as individuals are going to have an opportunity to do so much more than what we're doing now. I mean, just look at, at YouTube, the ability to publish and and create videos. These were things that years ago you needed to have, have some sort of technical training in being able to edit videos. Um, you know, they were all tape-to-tape decks, and you were trying to edit them down and then include an audio track. And now, with software being as simple as it is, anybody from, you know, a grandma to a young young kid can create their own professional-looking video or audio um, program or component. And, And I think that at some point, courts are going to be uh, dealing with issues of protection for these people. I, I think that uh, the idea that the New Jersey courts have laid out concerning the, the three criteria that have to be met will be carried over into other jurisdictions. And I think so long as uh, a blogger or um, a video blogger uh, meets those criteria, I think that uh, jurisdictions will extend them those protections. I also think that each of these cases are going to be dealt with on an individual basis. And I think we'll see a number of cases where the courts come down saying, you know, you you technically meet the criteria, but there seems to be an ulterior motive here. It doesn't seem to just be news-related. It could be some sort of slight vendetta or, you know, you're angry and therefore you're doing this and your intent was not to just produce uh, newsworthy information. But you know, that's, that's yet to be seen. But I, I think that all of these cases are going to be handled on a case-by-case basis. Uh, the next thing that I found interesting this week, uh, also arising out of, uh, of New Jersey, 
is this proposed bill that claims it would fight unemployment by invalidating restrictive covenants in employment contracts. So let's just take a step back and, and quickly review what a restrictive covenant is. Um, many companies will impose quote-unquote restrictive covenants uh, against their employees for the purposes of, of really protecting their own business. So a restrictive covenant can be something like a non-compete, meaning uh, if you leave the company or get fired, you will not disclose our trade secrets. You're not going to um, solicit any of our employees. All of the information that you gathered while you were at the company is protected, um, and you're not able to solicit our customers. You're not able to solicit, like I said, our personnel. You can't disclose information. And, you know, businesses look at this as one small means by which they can protect some of their very, very vital information. If you're in the services-based industry, accountants, lawyers, um, you know, that sort, even interior designers, your clients really are the basis of your business. And without your clients, and, you know, the clients that you've mined over the years and you've developed very solid relationships with them, without those clients, you have no business. And so uh, oftentimes businesses feel as though in order to protect their hard work um, and their client list that they require or, or should be able to require that their employees sign these restrictive covenants. Uh, same holds true with your staff. If, if you are fortunate enough to have built a very trustworthy and reliable staff, you certainly don't want a uh, you know an employee who either quits or gets fired contacting this person and saying listen I know you love working with Bill but we can give you the double the money and um, it's really worth your while I think you should come over so these restrictive covenants these agreements that the companies have the employees sign it's a means of protection so in New Jersey there's a pending bill the bill is known as a 3970 and it's uh, modeled after a bill that's currently pending in Maryland, but it's receiving a great deal of, um, of opposition, uh, especially by businesses. And it's not just big business. It's businesses of every size. And here in New Jersey, the bill is introduced under the guise of, well, we can help eliminate or at least reduce the current unemployment by restricting businesses and preventing businesses from being able to get these restrictive covenants. Now, the, the logic behind it, which in my opinion doesn't make much sense, the logic behind it is that if you aren't restricted in your ability to go out and um, get another job, solicit customers, solicit employees, that sort of thing, um, that you're going to have an easier time finding work. And unfortunately, I, I don't see the correlation between um, not having a restrictive covenant and the ability to go get work. I, I think that there's this idea that um, businesses are preventing their employees from, from getting work, and I, I don't see any justification uh, to that. Now, there are restrictive covenants that may seek to restrict the territory 
in which a former employee can now go out and solicit business. And this happens very frequently with physicians in private practice where they may be in a group and when one doctor leaves the group, the group says, hey, listen, we've worked too hard to get our, our, our clients, our patients, and we've built a reputation for ourselves in this area, and we don't want you competing. So your agreement that you signed says that you will not work uh, within a 25-mile radius of our office, and that might extend for a year. So this is another form of restrictive covenant. And um, when you are, are, are being handed such an agreement, you know, I think it's the employee's duty to understand what's being said, to, to contact an attorney if they don't fully understand before signing it. And you don't see restrictive covenants in retail jobs and, uh, and you know, the average everyday um, employment. You see them in large companies or you see them in very small companies uh, where you've got one or two employees and the business owner is dead set on protecting their investment. But the ability, uh, I think, of businesses to protect themselves is very important. Now, you might think to yourself, oh, yeah, but it doesn't sound too fair for an employee who can't work within a 25-mile-an-hour radius because, you know, stick your compass or your protractor, you can never get them straight, on a map and draw a circle and look how far you can't, you can't open up a business or practice them. Well, states look at these sort of, of restrictive covenants that deal with where you can practice and for how long on an individual basis, and they make a determination as to whether or not the restrictions are fair. And I think that, for the most part, the courts have a very good handle on when something is not, not fair, when it prevents somebody from being able to earn a living. They look at things like the duration of the agreement, the uh, territory within which the limitation is is seeking to be uh, enforced, and they make, I think, fair and, and reasonable determinations. And this really is countrywide. Every state has a different analysis concerning uh, these sort of territorial limitations after an employee leaves or gets fired. But I don't think that a bill restricting uh, the ability of, of businesses to have these covenants is really necessary. I think it hurts businesses. I don't see a benefit to employees because if an employee believes that since there's no restrictive covenant in place, I can solicit business, I can, um, you know, quote-unquote, uh, steal employees and, and open up my own business, I think what you're going to see happen is that uh, there's going to be an increase in litigation against former employees because the lack of the restrictive covenant in the contract does not prevent an employer from uh, suing an employee or a former employee for a variety of claims, including tortious interference with business or, or whatnot. So I think that if you give an employee the general sense that, hey, there's, there's no rules here, I can do whatever I want, I think unfortunately in today's day and age and with the economy that if they're in a particular field, um, let's say uh, you know an, an accountant, and they're leaving a group uh, with no restrictive covenant in place, I think it's going to give them the ability to try to 
take clients and take staff, and I think it's just going to have an increase in uh, in lawsuits. So I'm really interested in hearing what um, you, know, you, the listeners, have to say about this proposed bill, either from a, a business end or from a purely um, you know, employment standpoint. And I'd like to uh, to get your feedback. So uh, I'm going to, at the end of the show, give you an email address that you can um, you know, write your comments and thoughts on about this. Um, and we're going to post them via Twitter and Facebook and then uh, you know, hopefully have a discussion, a follow-up discussion about this next week. I think that we're going to see this in more and more states, but I think that, like in Maryland, where they're having trouble, I think we're going to see... Um, that these bills don't really get all that far. Uh, the next thing I want to talk about is primarily for uh, businesses, uh, businesses that need to go outside and hire a lawyer. And you know, oftentimes large businesses, they have uh, in-house or general counsel. And the general counsel, they, they have a little bit of knowledge about everything. They primarily deal with compliance and um, you know, certain employment issues. But when there's litigation involved, it's typically farmed out. So if you are a business and you have general counsel and you farm out your litigation, or if you're a business that does not have general counsel, but you hire a, a litigation attorney to deal with your um, litigation matters, I want to talk about ways for you to protect against uh, the lawyers on the outside overbilling. And um, the first point that I want to touch on is, is choosing the correct law firm. Uh, oftentimes people are under the impression that if I, if I select the largest law firm, the, the largest number of attorneys, the largest and most expensive law firm in the state, I'll be okay. I'll be okay from a quality of uh, legal work standpoint. I'll be okay from a billing standpoint. I know it'll be expensive, but it'll be worth it. And unfortunately, that's not always true because these larger firms, uh, the massive, you know, firms with, with one or two hundred lawyers, you te- you typically see um, a widespread. Uh, I don't want to say overbilling, but you know, there were a couple cases uh, and investigations, you know, recently with large firms. There was a, an investigation um, alleged against DLA Piper. And, uh, and their associates and, and partners, whereby they were saying that they were just you know, padding the bills, and um, you know they obviously dispute it and, and they are, are defending against it, and, and they vehemently oppose the allegations, saying that they did nothing wrong. But I think that there is a um, ability of, of larger firms with multiple paralegals and young associates to be able to increase the bills that they're going to send you because they're going to review it as the partner when the file comes in. Then they're going to hand it down to an associate. There's going to be meetings. There's going to be paralegal time on it. So that's that's the first thing you want to look for. You want to try to choose the correct law firm. And that does not always mean going with a large super firm. Um, you'll probably get better rates with a smaller firm. You'll be able to have a better relationship with the attorney. Um, so I think that's important to look at. The second thing is to make sure that 
when you are meeting with the attorney that your matter is not going to be overstaffed. And what, what do I mean by that? You want to find out from the attorney who is going to be working on your file, how many people. You don't want a firm where they're going to assign three attorneys and three associates and two partners to your file. All that's going to do is, is generate increased billing hours, and it, it really creates just an inefficient uh, environment. There's typically duplication that occurs and people checking on uh, the work of others. So you want to make sure that your matter is adequately staffed but not overstaffed, and that really comes with speaking to the attorney that uh, you're going to be considering uh, hiring. Uh, the next thing is to make sure that the firm you're going to is going to limit the involvement of inexperienced attorneys. Oftentimes, the larger firms will employ the use of summer associates or uh, first-year attorneys who don't really have the requisite skill, and it ends up uh, being something where a more senior attorney is going to have to redo the work and believe it or not, you're, you're going to get billed for that. It might not say a rewrite of, you know, young associates motion, but it'll be rolled in. You know, large firms are not going to lose time um, because they've had to duplicate the effort of someone else. So I think that you want to have a clear understanding of who's going to be working on your file from an attorney standpoint. Are you going to use first-year associates? Are they going to be dealing with you? Um, you know, what's, what's your level of experience? Because that's going to help you reduce what you spend. All right, the next uh, factor is um, your ability to scrutinize the bill. So when you receive a bill, you want to make sure that whatever attorney is sending you the bill, it's itemized. Unless you've, you've made an arrangement with that attorney where you're going to be charged a flat fee and all of the services are going to be rolled into one price, if you're getting a bill that has numerous entries on it, you want to have them itemized, and that's going to help you be able to determine whether or not the entries are legitimate or not. Um, you know, an entry that says telephone call, it doesn't really help you identify what the person was doing. And if the telephone call was billed at an hour, well, what does that mean, telephone call? With who? What did you talk about? And I'm not suggesting that every invoice needs to be a, uh, a full narrative, but you should have at the very least an entry that, that reads something like telephone conference with court concerning um, you know, discovery schedule or something like that, but at least it gives you an idea. Uh, and make sure that you look at the estimates of, of, of time that you know they had told you during your preliminary meetings with, with your attorneys, because oftentimes a client, especially in business, will ask an attorney, well, how long do you think this will take, or can you give me an estimate or an idea? And an attorney might give you a range of, of hours, and it might be, oh, 10 to 30 hours. So just keep track and be cognizant of the fact that, you know, they did give you an estimate that unless something uh, unique has come up in the case, if they've told you 10 to 30 hours to begin with and, and you see that you're now at 50 hours, something might be wrong. And you want to be able to talk to the attorney and say, why is this happening? The last thing that I think is important for uh, clients to know is that you know, if you feel that you're being overbilled, you should talk to the attorney immediately. 
and it's it's often best to um, come in and talk to an attorney and say, listen, I, I see my bill is, is X amount. It seems high. Can you explain why? Oftentimes, uh, a bill is higher than a client expects because an attorney has had to do a lot more work because uh, in litigation you're dealing with the courts and their congestion, you're dealing with your adversaries and other attorneys, and um, the whole litigation process is not always made uh, completely easy when you've got all of these conflicting personalities and opinions and positions. So oftentimes there is a legitimate reason for the bill being uh, higher than you expected. So you know, my advice is be able to go in, sit down, and talk to the attorney. Don't automatically assume that the attorney is trying to cheat you because most cases they're not. Um, and if, if you've got a good attorney that explains it to you, I think that you know, you'll have a better understanding of what's going on. And if uh, he believes that you know there is a bill that could be cut down or uh, inadvertently overbilled, the attorney should be willing to reduce the the fee. So that's just some suggestions concerning the use of outside counsel or uh, hiring a litigation attorney if you're a business. Uh, we're running out of time today. There's just one other thing I wanted to quickly touch on. Uh, a Disney worker, a Disney contractor in California was fined $235,000 um, because he didn't comply with OSHA uh, regulations. And next time I want to talk a little bit about licensing for contractors and home improvement contractors and the steep fines and penalties that you face when you don't comply. And this, this Disney um, you know, fine of $235,000 I think is a, is a very glaring example because uh, this is against a contractor, not a construction company. So uh, that's all we have time for today. I, I do hope that uh, this is uh, an interesting format that we've now laid out. Um, if you want to contact us concerning this, please email us at info at Peter, that's P-E-T-E-R, Lamont, L-A-M-O-N-T-E-S-Q dot com. And if you want to call us, 973-949-3770. Thank you. 